How are we doing? We good? About a five, I'm just being honest. All right. Uh, Sorry, we're going to have a good time together. We are in the last week of this series called House United and talking about marriage once again, because marriage is one of those subjects that you can't get enough in just on one week. And so we talked last week about it. We're talking this week. And I would argue even in two weeks, it's tough to get it. That's why we have the marriage conference coming up. And so if you haven't taken an opportunity to sign up for that, it's on the 5th of May. So it'll be coming up in a couple months. It's only 10 bucks. You can sign up for our, at our website. And I promise you it is well worth your time. It's going to be on a Saturday morning. And uh, I mean, it, really, it's a steal of a deal because the guy that is coming to talk, I'm telling you, I call him Yoda. He is just like, he's just wise. I mean, he's older than me, but he's like wise beyond he, his years. And I, I promise you, my wife and I, we will be here. It's going to be a great experience. So if you have a Bible, open it back up to Ephesians chapter five. That's where we were last week. We're going to continue in that uh, same text this week because I told you last week, it, this is arguably the greatest text on marriage there is uh, in the Bible. I mean, they're all good, but this one just gives us more. It just helps us understand marriage more than I think almost any other text. And so before we jump into it, let's pray as we get started. Father, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for what you're doing in us and for us. And, and God, I pray as we open up your word now that you would help us, that you would help us to see um, just who you are and, and what you're doing and, and just give us a vision beyond what we can even currently understand about what marriage is and, and how marriage works. And so God, I pray that you would help us because we need it in Jesus' name, amen. In Ephesians chapter five, we're gonna start at the end of the text and then come back to the beginning and then work our way through because I wanna make the point, kind of the, you know, the, the principle and again, get into some of the practical implications of that. So we're gonna start in verse 31 through verse 33. I'll give you my point and then we'll move back to, uh, up to verse 22. So here's what verse 31 says. Paul says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you, uh, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, a couple things here. First, Paul, in verse 31, is quoting out of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, when, that's why it's in parentheses in your Bible, he says, therefore, every man leaves his father, uh, further, that's father and mother put together, all right, and um, leaves his father and mother and is joined together with his wife and they become one flesh. The reason why that is important is just by the nature of the way revelation works, and I'm not talking about the book, but I'm talking about God revealing himself is Paul goes all the way back to the beginning to ground his understanding of marriage. And that's important because all of us, all of us approach the Bible with a cultural understanding. So we, we right now have a 21st century cultural understanding of what marriage is, husbands and wives and all that kind of stuff. And what's important is every culture, whether it's you know, American culture in 21st century, whether it's European, whether it's African, Asian, whatever it is, every culture has to do the hard work of going all the way back to the beginning and letting God define marriage, not their current cultural context. It's important for all of us and in every culture. I mean, in, in, I mean, American culture has changed over the last 50 to 70 years as things have just happened and they're so much different than they were in the last century. 
And so every culture has to start where Paul starts. He starts with God. And here's why that's so important. God is the inventor of marriage. God is the creator of marriage. I like to say it was his idea. He's the one that came up with it. He's the one who created male and female. He's the one who made marriage pleasurable and, and, and all the things that marriage is. That was all God's idea. So it stands to reason that the creator would understand marriage more than the creation because it was his idea. But a lot of us have this mentality, I think, that, that and I always think about this about teenagers, because Brian Damro, he's not a teenager anymore, but he's on staff here. He used to be a student of ours in Texas, and his family and our family were very close, and we were at their house all the time, and there was this sign outside of Brian's room that said, I think, I don't know if he put it there or if his parents put it there, it said, teenagers, move out right now while you know everything. <laughs> and the idea of it was, is right, like the teenagers knew more than their parents. And, and I'm not, you know, banging on teenagers, but my point is saying is this, a lot of us approach life like that with God. We think we know better than him. We think our understanding of him, uh, of marriage or how to live our life is, is better than God's understanding. To which I would say, listen, man, God created human beings. Every emotion that you have came out of the brain and heart that God made. So it only stands to reason that God would understand it better than you and I. And so what I mean by that, and again, feel free to amen at any point in time. I told you last week I was in Africa for two weeks and I need some amen in, all right? So if I say amen, you can say amen, all right? Amen. amen. Thank you. Appreciate that, all right? It just makes things go better, right? It's like butter on a biscuit. I mean, it just helps. I mean, just, you know, just, I mean, it's good, you know? And now you're all thinking Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel, Cracker Barrel, right? Little word of wisdom there, you get it, they're hot, put the butter on, let it sit for a little while, then it just gets better, right? And then you can eat it. All right, moving back to the text. Um, the understanding, the understanding that Paul has is that he goes all the way back to the beginning of Revelation, not the book, but of God revealing himself. The nature of revelation, uh, I was I'm going to say revolution. The nature of revelation is this. In the beginning, God not only created, but God revealed himself. And he has been revealing himself all the way up to Jesus. So Paul goes back to the beginning, just like Jesus does in the Gospels, about what the understanding and the foundation of marriage is. And then Paul says this unbelievable phrase. He says, this mystery is profound. Now that should give us some hope. Because you know what Paul just said? Marriage is mysterious. Amen. Amen. Yeah, yeah. Come on now. Jasper, I know you feel it. All right. Yes, marriage is mysterious. It's confusing. It's hard. Be like, it shouldn't be hard. What in life that is beautiful is not hard. You know, it's like, it shouldn't be hard to lose weight, right? I mean, it's just things that are worth something are hard. And so when it comes to marriage, I love that the Bible says it's a mystery. Man, that is so helpful to me because I'm 16 years in and I'm more confused sometimes than I was at the beginning. <laughs> it's mysterious. 
But then I also love, not that, that Paul just recognizes that there's a mystery, but then he gives us the key to unlocking the mystery. And, and this phrase here, profound, is the Greek word mega. It's mega mysterion. But then he says this, and, and it's unbelievable that Paul would speak like this. And he says, and I am saying, I am saying. Again, you need to understand the nature of revelation. I'm going to give you a theological term and you can look it up later, but it, it helps to understand what Paul's getting at here. There's a word in theology called progressive revelation. Now, the word progressive, again, don't put a 21st century political spin on it. That doesn't mean the same thing. Progression just means to progress. And so when the term progressive revelation is used, what that means is the Bible builds on itself. So from Genesis to the book of Revelation, the Bible is God's account or revelation of himself. And so what you see in the Old Testament, in creation, God created marriage, and then you see everything starting to build on top of that. And what's amazing is Paul considers himself as speaking on behalf of God. He's quoting Genesis 2, which God said that, and now he says, and I'm saying that that refers to Christ in the church. See, Paul understood himself to be the inspired writer of the words of God. He told this to Timothy, all scriptures breathed out by God. So what Paul is saying here is he's saying, listen, I'm giving you more revelation about marriage. I'm, I'm giving you more understanding about what marriage is because if you just look at the Genesis 2 text, you don't fully understand the context for which God created marriage. He's saying, listen, the whole marriage relationship, the key to unlocking the mystery is understanding that it's more profound than you ever thought. Marriage is deeper than you ever thought. It's not just for procreation. It's not just for pleasure. It's for something else that's deeper than those two things. And then he says it like this. It's about Christ and the church. It's about Christ and the church. So let me give you my point and then we'll unpack it as we look at more texts. Here's my point. Marriage is a mystery. We've established that. Marriage is a mystery. Therefore, the gospel helps us understand marriage, and marriage helps us understand the gospel. Thank you. Let me say it again. Marriage is a mystery. We can agree on that one. Therefore, the gospel, which is the good news about what Christ has done, helps us understand marriage, and marriage helps us understand the gospel. Paul is saying you need to understand why God created marriage. God didn't create marriage simply for the multiplication of human beings, although it takes that. He created marriage to display a fundamentally deeper truth. And that deeper truth that the first marriage was intended to communicate and the last marriage will consummate. And this is what you need to understand. The whole storyline of the Bible is one big love story. It starts with the marriage. It ends with the marriage. And the marriage that it ends with is with Jesus and his church at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so this vision that Paul is saying is, listen, our marriages 
find the key to unlocking the mystery to it by understanding the grand story in which God placed marriage. Marriage is fundamental to what God is doing in the world. And when we understand that, when we understand the good news about what God is doing, when we understand the revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he's done, then it better helps us understand the purpose of marriage. And then marriage helps us better understand the purpose of the gospel. So Paul is, again, by the nature of progressive revelation, he's saying, listen, God made it here, but this is why he made it. And that's exactly how the Old Testament and New Testament work together. You see this beyond just the concept of marriage. All throughout the Old Testament, when, and if you've been reading this in our Bible reading plan, after the, God frees the nation of Israel and they come out in the exodus from Egypt, and then God gives them the commandments. And, and you're, I'm just warning you, you're gonna get into some text over the next few months. You're gonna be like, what in the world? This law after that law after this law. Well, the whole reason why God does that is because God's establishing a precedent of understanding. He's establishing a context, if you will. And so the whole sacrificial system of sacrificing animals, it's not that, that God didn't love animals and they had to be sacrificed in order for us to have forgiveness of sins. The whole reason why is because that, we, that context gave us understanding that Jesus is the real lamb. So without that system, we wouldn't have understand, understood the substance. Does that make sense? And so the same is true in the nature of marriage. Without the system of the human institution of marriage, we wouldn't have understood the substance of how to love someone unlike ourselves. That's the point. In marriage, two sinners trying to love the other is synonymous with, in our relationship with Christ, one who knew no sin became sin because he loved us. And so the key to unlocking the mystery of marriage is understanding the context in which it finds itself. The point of it, what's the purpose of it? What's, I love how Tim Keller says it, the meaning of marriage. Because it's not until you understand that meaning that then you can practically live it out. It's not until you understand that principle that you can practically live it out. And that's why Paul says, however, let each husband love his wife and let each wife respect her husband. The word there, however, in in English is not the best translation of the word in Greek because it makes it sound like it's like emphatic conjunction, like it's saying opposite, but it's better reading as now or with this understanding, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. And we're going to look into that in just a second about how that happens in those two roles, but here's the principle. You can never fully understand how to love your wife. You can never fully understand how to respect your husband unless you understand the gospel. You can never practically live that out unless you first see what God was doing in it. And I would argue to you, you can't just theoretically believe it without practically doing it. That's why he says, love your wife, respect your husband. Let me say it to you like this. And this is one of those things, and I just gotta be honest with you as a pastor, sometimes the stage is somewhat of a confessional. But when, when people say what I'm about to say to you next, I just wanna like trip them in Jesus' name. It's just one of those things that frustrates me as a pastor, I can't back that, back that up biblically so I don't do it, but I'm just saying it's my heart, right? But it's very similar to when people say something like this. I'm a part of a big C church. Oh, okay, great. What local church are you a part of? Oh, I'm not a part of a local church. 
I just worship Jesus on the mountains. Okay. You understand, this is why I want to trip them. You understand how crazy that thought is? You can't be a part of the Big C Church unless you're a part of a local church. Because the Big C Church is made up of thousands and thousands of local churches. So that's like saying, theoretically, I'm a part of the people of God, but I don't want to do any of that loving the people of God that he tells me to. You with me when I say that? One person thought it was funny. I thought that was great. (laughs) And again, this is why it annoys me as a pastor, because people come and go to our church all the time. I'm not talking about anybody necessarily, but it's just the principle that that bugs me sometimes. People say, well, I quit going to that church because they hurt me. Oh, so when your wife hurts you, you're just going to walk out? No. You practically love your enemy. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? Love your enemy. So here's what I'm saying. I think a lot of people theoretically think they're in love without really loving. This is, we even talk about marriage this way. I'm, I fell in love as if I was just walking and tripped into it, right? It's not something you fall into, man. I mean, you fall into it, you can climb out. No, it's a choice you make. Listen, there are plenty of times where I don't feel like loving my wife. But I'm not going to be that theoretical person that does it in theory and not in reality. Like a lot of Christians, I'm just a part of the big C church. Well, what local group of people are you doing life with and you're loving and you're submitting to the authority of elders in the church? Because that is the vision of the New Testament. To which I would say to people like, oh, we're just living together. We love each other. No, you, <laughs> that's like, you're doing this in theory. This is why you need to understand people who live together before they get married, the div- percentage of divorce is higher. Why? Because they got into it under different pretenses. But when you get into marriage, understanding what it is and what God made it to be, And it's to be an unconditional God-like love where two people are trying to figure out how to love the stranger they're married to. Because you need to know something. You always marry the wrong person. (laughs) Always. I think I married the wrong person. We all did, bro. Just let me line up. Because the person they presented wasn't the one we married. Right? Like it was a sliver of that person. And so you get married to somebody, you're like, who is this stranger? And that's when I, I mean, I'm 16 years in now, and I feel like I'm just getting started and understanding how to love my wife. And, and what I'm saying to you is this. Marriage is the opportunity that God created to practically live out the gospel in your life. Now, that doesn't mean if you're not married, you're somehow less than. I need you to know that. If you're single in the house today, listen, Paul paints a grand vision of singleness in in Corinthians. Paul was single. I don't think, personally, I don't think Paul was ever married. We know Jesus wasn't married, so it's not like Paul and and Jesus were somehow less than. No, they, they lived their life with a grand vision of even understanding what marriage was, even though they weren't practically married. 
So I'm not saying if you're somehow not married, you're less than, but here's what I am saying. There's a unique way in which marriage displays the gospel. It's the metaphor. Again, it's the system to which the substance points to, or points to the substance, I should say. So that's the vision. That's the understanding that Paul's, that's the mystery that Paul's unlocking. Man, this is far deeper. This is far more complicated and mysterious than you ever thought. But here's the key. The key is Jesus. Now go back to verse 22. We're going to talk specifically about roles, roles of wives, roles of husbands. And again, I just want to say this as a disclaimer before we get into verse 22. Don't throw tomatoes or stone me, all right? Stoning is a biblical concept, but not in the one that still applies today, all right? Because, and I want you to hear me say this because I love you, you and I, we cannot impose meaning onto the Bible. The theological term for that is eisegesis. That means when you put meaning into it, into. The only way to read the Bible is exegesis, which means you pull meaning out of. So every single one of us, and we're 21st century Americans, we read into this meaning based upon our current cultural context. So as best we can, we have to come to it as, a, as much of a blank slate as we can and say, okay, what does the Bible have to say about this? So with that, let's read first in verse 22 about wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now let's chat for a second, right? Because you hear that word, submit, and the hairs on the back of your neck are standing up, and you're getting a tick, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know. Listen, a couple things here. First, in verse 22, the word there in English, submit, it is not there in the Greek. And the reason why I point that out is because I don't want you just to bristle at, mm, this seems so harsh. Wives submit in everything. In verse 24, it's not there either. It borrows from verse 21, which we read last week, where Paul says, submitting to one another. So it would better read like this, submitting to one another, wives to your own husbands. To your own husbands. Now, notice what it didn't say. It didn't say, women, submit yourselves to men. Didn't say that. Again, this is why you can't think like, oh, you're going back 1950s. No, we're going way further back than that. I want you to, and I mean this when I say it, I don't know if there's any document that has done more for the elevation of women than the Bible. So it was written in such a misogynic time. Yeah, and it railed against it. If you read how Jesus elevated women, what Jesus did for the role and status of women, sadly, it's taken the church and even this country too long to figure that out. But this is not somehow that women are less than men. 
This is all about order. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So wives, let me ask you a question. Is it a bad thing to submit to Jesus? No. Why? Because he's your head. He's the head of the church. We are his body. And head does not mean more important. It just means different. So the biblical view of marriage is this. Men and women have equal status, but differentiating roles. Equal status, different roles. I love how one commentator said it, equal but not interchangeable. Here's the best way I think to understand this. The Trinity. The Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those, again, one of those progressive revelation things that people in the Old Testament did not understand that God was three in one, even though all the way back in Genesis, the plural was there because God said, let us make man in our image. Let us. Well, who's us? Well, it's not God and the angels, right? It's, it's the Trinity. It's God. God is a plurality. And so over the years, over the centuries, we pull all these texts together and theologians come up with the word Trinity. It means try three, unity, one. That's why I love it, because it's a made-up word. Trinity. Put two words together. I'm just trying to be biblical, y'all. We're going to put words together. Try unity. So here's the thing. The Trinity is three and one. Three and one at the same time. And it's otherworldly. There is no metaphor that you can accurately describe it with. People are like, well, it's like water, you know, ice and steam. Yeah, but it's all those three at one time. So, yeah, I mean, it kind of, but not, I mean, it's, it, I mean, how do you describe God? But you want to know how God chose to? Give us a picture of that. Marriage. Because marriage is not three in one, but two in one. Two unique people, two individual people that are now one flesh. So there's a two-ness and a oneness. And the theological word for that is called complementarianism. You can look that up later. It means men and women are equal and complement each other. And they both image God, tell us something about Jesus in complementary ways. And so here's what we need to understand. Remember, equal, but not interchangeable. The Trinity is the Trinity. Three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, guess what? God the Father is not God the Son. The second person of the Trinity is the only person who came into our world and put on flesh. The Father didn't do that. The Spirit didn't do that. So the son can't be the father, the son can't be the spirit. The father can't be the son or the spirit. The spirit can't be the father or the son. Don't ask me to do that again. I did it without error, all right? <laughs> Rewind, replay later. Hear me. Equal, but not interchangeable. And so you take that principle and you apply it to marriage. Remember, the marriage, help, the gospel helps us understand this. Men and women, husbands and wives, equal, 
but not interchangeable. So a husband can't be a wife, a wife can't be a husband. They image God in unique ways. And the primary role of the wife is helper, and the primary role of the husband is headship. Now notice the word there for head, he said the, for the husband's the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, is not the same Greek word as Lord. Wives, I want you to understand something. Your husband is not your Lord, that is Jesus. But it does mean leader. The husband is called to be the leader the husband is the one who is called to have a vision for his family, a vision for his marriage, a vision for his kids, a vision that is unique to the Bible, and it's all about the kingdom of God. That's the role of the husband, to have that kind of headship, that kind of leadership. Now, again, I need you to hear me say this, and I'll get into this in just a second when we talk about husbands. When I say leadership, and, and we naturally think of authority, we think, oh, that's bad. No, hear me. And this is what one uh, commentary said, and I want to read it to you because it's that good. Authority is not the right to rule. It's the responsibility to serve. So the role, hear me, the role of a husband is not to lord authority. It's not some right that men have. It's a responsibility that men have. And that responsibility is to serve their wife, to serve their kids, to serve their families. And this word submit is not the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter six when he tells children, obey parents. You wanna know why? Because parents and kids are not equal. That right there solves about 90% of your parenting problems, man. Quit asking them what they think. Right? I mean, you're, you're not equals. But listen, I get the friendship part, but here's the thing. You want to parent in such a way that when they're adults, you can be friends then. But your kids are not your friends. They're your kids. And it's our responsibility as parents to instruct them. And kids, it's your responsibility to obey. Why? Because obey is a stronger word than submit. Obey means I'm underneath. You get to call the shots. I don't. That's not the word that Paul uses for wives. It is the word that Paul uses for kids, and it is the word that Paul uses for us in relationship to God. And this is why I tell my kids all the time. I told them since they were young. And you may think I'm a bad parent because I make my kids say, yes, sir, and they got to show it. Why? I'll never forget when my son was barely old enough to even talk. I, I got him by his, by his collar and brought him close. I said, listen, son, you have to learn how to obey me because one day when you grow up and leave this house, you cannot think that there's not still a father you need to obey. Amen. And so obedience from a parent's perspective is about teaching our kids how to submit their life to the authority of God. This is why if you can't submit to your parents, the Bible says, it ain't going to go well with you. <laughs> I'm just telling you. But wives, hear me, and, and I got to move on. It didn't say wives obey your husbands. So if your husband is sinful and asks you to do something, you don't have to obey that. But what it does say is respect them. And here's what that means, and, and we got to move on. 
How do you speak about your husband? If you're not married, how do you speak about men? See, if you've been listening to our culture for the last 60 years, we just say men are glorified cavemen and baboons. Like we're somehow idiots. Now, granted, I get it. A lot of the problems in the world are caused by men. I mean, every school shooting we see, it's always a boy. Why? Because they don't have a vision of what it means to be a man. They don't know what to do with their anger and their emotions. But here's what I'm saying. Your posture towards your husband has to be one of respect. Let me, let me say it to you like this. Would you talk about Jesus the way you talk about your husband? Because they're both your head, the Bible says. So if you talk about your husband, your man, the way you would never talk about Jesus, I'm just here to say that is sin. It's all about helping. And the best way to help a man, any man would tell you, is not to berate him, but to help him, to encourage him. It's funny. We, we like to think that men aren't emotional. No, we're emotional. We're just not as complex. It's pretty simple. Just respect us, and man, we'll step into leadership. Now, husbands, let's look at the text for you. And ladies, just in case you were annoyed, the Bible gave you three verses. It gave the men six. <laughs> twice as many. And that's not because he needs twice as much telling. <laughs> no, that means it's twice the responsibility. Look at what he says to husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. See, men, hear me when I say this. And ladies, you need to know that this statement of love your wife was far more controversial in the first century than the other one was in the 21st century. Because when Paul said husbands love your wives to a first century mindset, we're like, what do you mean love? They're like property, bro. No, the Bible says you love her. You love her like Christ loves you. You lay down your life. What do you mean lay down my life for her? Yeah, you sacrifice, you serve. And this is what I need you to understand. When the Bible says wives submit to your husbands, it's not saying then husbands lord it over your wives. It's saying husbands, you go even lower. You go even lower. And you be like Jesus who laid down his life. When the church was beginning in the first, uh, in the first part of the uh, uh, before Christ goes to the cross, he has this conversation where he washes the disciples' feet. And those first 12 guys that were there were the beginning of the church. And Jesus washes their feet. That's the posture he took. He says, I give you an example. Go and do likewise. Why? Because the greatest among you is your servant. So as husbands, we are called to go low enough to wash our wives' feet or at least pay for somebody to wash them, right? <laughs> That's what I do, I'm just saying. 
It's not that I wouldn't, but. <laughs> it ain't just the last service, I promise. Uh, but you see what I'm saying? It's about a posture. I want to do anything in my power, everything in my power to lay down my life for my wife. Because it's in doing that that I understand that that's what Christ did for me. And I'm saying a message to the world. I'm doing this so that you can see what Christ did. Love your wives. Cherish her. Listen, men. Your role in the relationship is not just to be pampered like a king. And when we think of respect, that's what we think about. I'm just gonna sit here while you all serve me. No, your role in the marriage is to go first. That's what it means to be a leader. Leaders go first. Leaders take the hit. That's the job. And, and we think about that. Men even kind of fantasize about that. Not, maybe fantasize is not the right word, but we kind of envision somebody breaking through our house. And, and I've said this before. I kind of want somebody to just so I get to hit somebody with a bat, right? Like you just kind of think like that. Like, man, that'd be cool. I, I would so protect my wife and kids, and I would. But will I daily serve them? Will I look for ways to serve my wife and kids, to keep having a vision of saying, man, I wanna love you the way Christ loves the church. I'm gonna keep laying down my life for you, doing whatever I can do. I'm gonna kill myself before, and I don't mean that emphatically, I mean that metaphorically. I'm gonna go without so that you can have. That's the vision. And husbands, hear me. The only way you will ever do that is when you get that that's what Christ did for you. He loved you enough to lay down his life for you. Paul goes on, look at the last couple of verses. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it. Listen to this next word, man. Cherishes it. Cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. And listen, I'm 16 years in and Lindsay would be the first to tell you I am not perfect in this. But my house is different when I go first in cherishing my wife. Cherish who she is. She has a soul. She's not an object for me just to chase around the house, although that's fun and I do that. <laughs> but it's, a, it's because of who she is, not what she can give. And so, again, I can't solve every issue or talk about everything when it comes to marriage, and this is why we got the marriage conference. You should sign up for it. But I just wanna give you a vision big enough so that you can do what we talked about last week and have this posture paradox where you look up and you go down to serve. 
And there's unique ways that husbands do that and wives do that. And those roles are not interchangeable because it diminishes who God is. Again, the problem with a lot of our marriages today is not that we had the whole idea of marriage wrong. It just means we were doing it wrong. And a lot of times the reason why we're doing it wrong is because we don't understand the context of the gospel that it was placed in. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I, I know a topic like this, it's upsetting to some, it's hurtful to others. But God, my, my goal today has been to be helpful because there's been a lot of tragedy and heartache that has come out of human relationships. And God, one of the primary reasons why is because we weren't living out the gospel in our marriages. We weren't laying our lives down for our wives. We weren't submitting ourselves to our husbands. And it's a mystery, God, and we need you. But the key to unlocking it is understanding how much you love us. We were your enemy, yet you still laid down your life for us. So God, I pray for anybody in the house or listening or watching that has never trusted Jesus, has never come to a point in time in their life where they have understood how much you loved them and how you came to give your life for us. That is the greatest reality there is. One day in heaven, there will be no marriage because it will have reached its final consummation in our marriage with you. And so everything that we have here now is just a shadow of what that will be. But we can never live our marriage here now unless we understand that. So God, I pray if there's somebody here that's not saved, I pray that you'd save them. Because without you, they cannot fully enjoy marriage. Nobody looking around or talking, here's, we close. There's never been a point in time in your life where you've trusted Jesus to save you, where you've received his love. The Bible says that if you'll confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you'll be saved. So I'll just give you a simple opportunity to do that. If you want to trust Christ for the first time, I'm ask you to pray with me to yourself, not out loud. It goes like this. Say, God, thank you for loving me that you sent Jesus in my place for my sin. I ask you to forgive me, save me, I trust him. Thank you for loving me. Now again, if you're just praying that with me for the first time, nobody looking around or talking, we wanna celebrate with you, we wanna know that. So if you just trusted Christ for the first time, would you just simply lift your hand up so we can see that? Thank you. Just lift it up, leave it up just for a second. We got men and women walking around gonna put a gift in your hand. When they do, you can just put your hand down 
It's a Bible from us. We, we just want you to have some resources, some next steps. And so when you get that, you can put it down. But then those of us who would say we've trusted Jesus, and whether you're married or you're single, maybe you didn't fully understand marriage. Maybe you were thinking if you're single that getting married would finally make you happy, and you understand no, only Christ can do that. Because marriage is not a quest for personal happiness, it's a quest of personal sacrifice. But if you're married and you haven't had this posture towards your spouse, I want you to know something, man. Because of grace, the past can be forgiven. So if you haven't loved and served your wife, you can humble yourself today. Not only can God forgive you, but your spouse has an opportunity to forgive you. And God can wipe the slate clean. I don't care how long you've been married. I don't even care. Maybe you got divorced. That is not beyond the bonds, the bounds of what God can do if you'll take a posture of humility. Whether you're a husband or a wife, a successful marriage starts with a submitted life to Christ. And then it is proven in submission to the other. That's practically how it works. And I promise you, it ain't gonna be easy, but it'll be worth it. Because the more you lay down your life, the more you submit, the more you love, the more you will understand God's love for you. God, I pray that you would give us these kind of marriages. Like Hebrews says, we want marriage to be held in honor, honor among all. So we lift this up as a grand vision. We, we know it's weighty, it's mysterious, but we know that by the Spirit, through what Christ did for us, we can do our best to achieve it. And so would you give us grace? Would you empower us to love the other the way you love us? It's not gonna be easy, it's hard, it's tough, it takes daily sacrifice. But as we do it, we learn more about who you are and how you love us. So we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.